Good morning. It's February 15th. It is another bright winter morning here in New York City, and this is your Indignity Morning Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Skoka, taking a look at the day and the news. Kansas City had a Super Bowl victory parade yesterday, and someone or some people shot off a gun or guns, killing one person, wounding 21 more, and ruining yet another public gathering. And somehow, so far, the next day, there's still not even any coherent account of what happened between the routinization of gun violence and the death of the news media. Nobody seems to find it especially urgent to dig into figuring out how so many people got shot. It's not even clear which one of our three leading kinds of mass gun violence it was. It doesn't seem to have been the kind where someone decides to slaughter their family members or co-workers, but there's no real indication yet whether it was the kind of thing where someone sets out to terrorize and murder people in a crowd just because they're in a crowd, or whether some idiot or multiple idiots got mad and happened to be armed so that some kind of petty squabble or beef turned into large-scale public violence. You could say this shows that not even parades are safe anymore, but we already knew that parades weren't safe anymore. As the fake tradition of the fake right to bear arms continues to trump the fundamental freedom to gather in public, or even just to live. With only one dead and not much information about the news, the shooting got a photograph below the fold on the front of today's New York Times and a story on page A17, a reasonable piece of news judgment for a completely deranged age. The lead story in the paper is hundreds vacate hospital in fear of Israeli attack. Few safe places left. Grim choice for Gazans as army expands its assault in the south. This time the hospital is Nasser Medical Complex in Khan Yunis. As yesterday's newsletter discussed, the Israeli military isn't even trying to make up a particularly complicated or compelling story about why they might attack the hospital. They're just saying the words Hamas activity and telling everybody to get out. Elsewhere on page one. Prabowo Subianto, the defense minister of Indonesia, appears to be the winner in the country's presidential election, as his promise to continue the country's boom times with the son of the current president as his running mate, apparently made up for his earlier history of brutality and anti-democratic abuse. If the projections are confirmed, the Times writes, Indonesia, the world's third largest democracy, will be left contending with a president who has said that the country needs neither elections nor democracy, who was barred from entering the United States for two decades because of his human rights record, and who was long associated with Indonesia's former dictator, Suharto. There are two front-page stories about the state of the United States Congress. In the top one, the Times discusses how this week's New York special election narrowed the Republican margin in the House of Representatives even more, which will, the Times writes, give them almost no cushion to deal with the inevitable absences caused by illness, travel delays, weddings, funerals, and unforeseen events. This week's impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, the Times notes, could have been thwarted if one of two missing Democrats had been there. Representative Judy Chu of California, the Times writes, said she was isolating after testing positive for the coronavirus. And Representative Lois Frankel of Florida was grounded by a delayed flight. Further down, the story notes that Brian Mast of Florida, a Republican, also missed the vote because of airplane trouble. The story does not mention that all this volatility is made worse by the House Republicans having decided to eliminate absentee voting by proxy as part of their comprehensive rejection of any sort of accommodations to the pandemic. Instead of considering that counterfactual, Representative Byron Donalds of Florida, the Times reports, told CNN that Republicans had been stupid to expel George Santos from Congress, 
who, the Times writes, served as a reliable Republican vote in Congress despite being a serial fabulist, a figure of national ridicule, and the subject of a 23-count federal indictment. Honestly, it's kind of refreshing to see that calculation put out in the open. What's less reassuring to see in the open is the subject of the other front-page story about Congress, a pretty remarkable piece of news writing by the Times. Under the headline, Republicans take after Trump with bigoted attacks on foes, which describes Republicans attacking Ilhan Omar, or calling Cory Bush's husband a thug, or suggesting a Singaporean witness might secretly be a member of the Chinese Communist Party, as racist discourse. Not racially charged, not racially tinged, not raising questions about racism, not something that critics say could be perceived as racist, just plain old factually racist. And the story notes they're doing it because it works. The race-baiting comments, the Times writes, resonate with Mr. Trump's political coalition, which is 85% white in a country that is 59% white and becoming less so every day. An accurate, unhedged description of American politics. Maybe it's the start of something here. That is the news. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Indignity to keep us going. And if all goes well, we will talk again tomorrow.